Hello and welcome to the Tip of the Iceberg podcast. I'm Ashley Nickel with the Packer and PMG, and today we have with us David Magana, a senior analyst for Rabobank who specializes in fresh produce. David, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So we wanted to pick your brain first with a big picture question about kind of the overall outlook for fresh produce in the U.S. Of course, we've been hearing from pretty much all corners that uh, costs are up all over the place, right? Labor, uh, pallets, freight, um, but it's hard to pass those things along to the customer and, and the, the end consumer as well. So what's your assessment of just kind of the, the situation now and, and how those variables may or may not change uh, over the rest of the year here looking forward? Yeah, I, I will start with um, uh, talking a little bit about the labor situation, which has been um, a challenge for the industry for uh, several years now. And there are signs of a tighter labor market, um, farm labor market. Uh, for example, uh, we have producer reports of uh, labor shortages and also increases in farm wages. Uh, also, the industry is relying more on guest workers, the H2A program. And uh, also, there are signs of a decline of number of uh, immigrants from Mexico in the U.S. And as you know, it's no secret to anyone that uh, the U.S. agriculture, particularly fruit and vegetable production relies heavily on labor uh, from Mexico where several uh, demographic changes have been happening over the last uh, few decades. And for example, now the migration, the net migration from Mexico to the US over the last decade has been actually negative. And uh, now the pool, uh, the labor pool in Mexico is that has definitely declined compared to what we had, for example, in the 80s or even in the 90s. Um, so, and now there are more, more and more uh, ag opportunities in, in Mexico as many multinational companies are increasing their um, production in Mexico, such as berries and also avocados becoming more and more relevant and not to mention all the, all the vegetables as well. So that's a, that's a, a long-term trend uh, that has been happening. And given the demographic changes, uh, I don't see that this labor situation is going to change uh, anytime soon. Mm -hmm. Just to uh, give you a number, uh, just like the, for example, beer rate in Mexico that used to be like almost seven children per woman in the 70s has declined rapidly to almost uh, two children per woman uh, nowadays. So you will see that that we will have less and less young people uh, available to work overall, in, uh, but uh, also in the, in the industry. And, and um, as for this um, labor scarcity situation, uh, that is not exclusive for the U.S. market. We've seen uh, labor challenges um, and uh, uh, some challenges related to labor availability and labor cost. Also, in other parts of the world that are important for uh, fruit and vegetable production, uh, for example, I can tell you that a recent industry survey in Chile uh, showed that uh, there is about 50% less agricultural workers now compared to pre-pandemic 
pandemic levels. Uh, some of the factors driving this include the fear of COVID-19 contagion, mm -hmm. lack of the immigrant workforce, and also the lack of childcare. Um, also, for the in the case of Peru, there is a new agricultural law that requires a bonus of 30% above the minimum wage, in, ad in addition to other uh, working conditions that are, are needed to improve. Um, if we consider, for example, Mexico, the minimum wage has increased and aggregated 60% during the last four years. And also in the US, we all know that, the, for example, California minimum wage in 2021 is uh, $14 per hour and, and farmers have increasingly struggled to have enough uh, workers in the field. Um, so um, that was a long um, uh, starting answer. <laughs> no, that's all right. That is, that's fantastic context for uh... Probably, I mean, I, I would say probably the number one challenge facing agriculture. I don't know if that's, that's too sweeping, but it seems like it's, it's pretty universal at this point. Yeah, also there are some challenges also in, in, in Europe where uh, Western European uh, agricultural operators relied on the, uh, labor coming from Eastern European countries. So this is uh, more like a generalized um, um, challenge for the agricultural industry um, globally. Mm -hmm. So now we know um, going forward, um, as I said, I don't expect this uh, situation to change uh, anytime soon or if ever, uh, given this uh, generational change and also the demographic changes that I, I, I already uh, mentioned. Um, but um, uh, I think the industry as a whole will need to adapt to these mm -hmm. uh, new conditions. And um, uh, to say something, innovation has always been the answer to all the challenges that uh, agriculture has been facing over the years. But uh, now the equation is uh, more complicated, uh, given that we don't only are facing labor constraints, but also water challenges, land constraints, regulatory constraints, but also we have more tools at hand that can be used to tackle uh, those uh, challenges such as uh, uh, improved genetics. And uh, we have also have to invest more on uh, automation, robotics, uh, mechatronics to make the available labor uh, more uh, productive and more efficient. And not to mention also the information technologies that uh, will help to um, also be more efficient in, the, in, this, in this production process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I wanna continue to, to talk about labor and you mentioned Peru, and I thought it was really interesting because I, I was reading uh, before we, we talked today, and I want to, you know, let, let our listening audience in on this is you guys over at Rabobank just did a, a great comprehensive table grade report um, that just published recently, a, a really comprehensive breakdown of that segment of the industry, you know, for anybody listening who hasn't read that already. Um, and one of the things you mentioned in there about um, Peru just as you just alluded to, has had some, some legislation around agricultural workers. And we've seen Peru just become a, you know, an, an increasingly big, you know, player in terms of, of exporting globally and particularly for the U.S. market. I know 
table grapes is obviously one, blueberries is another one, avocados, we, we see growth um, for them in that area too. Do you think that um, with that new legislation, is that going to slow things down or, or what's kind of your outlook on that? Yeah, uh, yeah, Peru has been uh, definitely a successful story over the last few years. And we're, we're, uh, production of uh, the fruits that you mentioned, it's been expanding rapidly. And now uh, fr- from one or two seasons ago, Peru became the uh, primary uh, exporter of blueberries. And the same is going to happen in table grapes in the next uh, season or two. Um, surpassing uh, Chile, who was uh, uh, still the, uh, the main exporter of these two, these two fruits. And um, even when um, the minimum wage has this increase of 30% in terms of a bonus, uh, still they have a hu- uh, important uh, competitive advantage in terms of uh, labor cost. Just to tell your number, for example, the wages in Peru for agricultural workers um, are somewhere between twelve to fifteen dollars per day, which is um, below what they have to pay for an hour to an agricultural worker in California, right? Yeah. So still, they will continue to have this uh, cost uh, competitive advantage and also the uh, attractive market windows where they are uh, able to grow, uh, supply the market uh, between uh, in the, during the transition of the season between the North American production and the uh, Chilean production. And that's been happening in blueberries. That's also happening in uh, table grapes. And they have uh, um, very favorable growing conditions that allow them to have higher than average yields and, um, and, and be competitive. So uh, I would expect that um, barring any po- uh, social political uh, challenges, uh, Peru will continue to uh, be a relevant player in the fruit space for the Americas. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned those those favorable market windows, and, and one of the things I, I noticed that you you um, alluded to in the report, of course, was that um, because of the the growth of exports from Peru, the overall availability of table grapes in the U.S. as the California season's dwindling down is is going to go up. There's going to be more product overall available, and. Um, you, your quote in the report was, you know, as industry leaders have said, overlapping of growing regions brings excitement, but also pressure. So I think I can figure this out, but tell me a little bit more about which parties are excited and which ones are, are feeling pressure in that equation. Yeah, usually by the um, end of the California season, like uh, availability declined uh, significantly until uh, the uh, shipments from Chile were arriving. But now, given this uh, increase in um, shipments from Peru, we will have uh, more consistent uh, availability and also the overlapping with the layer, the um, end of the California season will continue to to increase. So uh, for those uh, markers in in California focusing on this uh, 
later part of the season, I mean, um, late November, December, or even the beginning of January, they will be facing increased competition uh, from Peru. And not only in terms of uh, just volumes per se, but also a significant change in the industry is the adoption of uh, proprietary uh, cultivars uh, that, uh, that means higher quality um, uh, table grapes that are going to be available in the market now in a more consistent way year round. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I know you mentioned that, um, you know, growing more of those, those proprietary or licensed varieties is, is one of the ways that the industry is trying to kind of fend off the, the commodity commoditization of, of table grapes. Right. And, I was curious what, you know, how, how much growth have, have we seen in that in the last few years? You know, when did that really start to take off? Well, uh, over the last uh, six to eight years, uh, really the proportion of these uh, um, exports out of Chile, Peru, it's been uh, increasing significantly. Now, um, in terms of market penetration, the proportion of shipments of protected uh, varieties from Chile, Peru, and let's say South Africa account for about 60% um, in the UK and in the US, and also about half in continental Europe. Uh, So we're seeing more and more of these um, uh, new cultivars um, uh, in table grapes um, uh, dominating the dominating the market and we're expecting that that will be the norm uh, going forward. And uh, some of these like uh, growers uh, have the benefit of uh, usually having higher deals uh, and these uh, um, uh, better new cultivars compared to traditional. And also another advantage is that given that these um, new table grape cultivars offer a um, better eating experience for consumers, usually they, they, need, they get a premium price as well. So this is one of the ways how the growers are adapting to these uh, challenges in terms of uh, water availability as the, you can get uh, more input efficiency when you have these enhanced uh, cultivars. Okay, okay. And another thing from the report that I thought was interesting was it sounds like the the demand for for those you know higher flavor specialty varieties um, is is different in different parts of the world. So it sounds like the U.S. of course is the place where it's it's seeing the most growth right now. But there's some emerging markets where where those those cultivars are becoming more relevant too. Is that right? Yeah, that, that is correct. Like uh, proprietary varieties have uh, an interesting room for growth in, uh, in some markets such as Japan, South Korea, uh, Southeastern Asian countries, and as well as, as, well as China. And, and obviously, as I mentioned before, uh, in the US and the UK and in some um, um, continental Europe, they, um, uh, these uh, proprietary cultivars already account for a, a, a very good proportion of the total shipments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And something else I thought was interesting, because you mentioned, you know, some of those, those Asian export markets. And something that kind of surprised me, I, I guess I had never thought of, of China and table grapes, you know, as far as China being an exporter. 
Um, but you wrote in the report, like they're becoming more and more relevant in that capacity. And, you know, maybe not tomorrow, but in the not too distant future, they could be competing with, um, you know, U.S. exports to some of these, some of these high value um, Asian markets. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, usually the main uh, net in, uh, table grape importers are the EU, uh, other Asia, uh, some Asian countries, uh, particularly Southeastern um, Asia, uh, the US, Russia, Canada, and traditionally uh, China, Hong Kong. But uh, given the increased um, in, in, in production in, in China and in exports, uh, they are basically focusing their airport exports to Southeastern um, uh, countries uh, where they demand mainly traditional varieties of table grapes. But now, um, uh, as we saw the uh, trade balance of China during 2020 and 21 um, a marketing season, they are kind now, uh, they're going from being net table grape importers to transitioning to net uh, exporters in the next um, couple of seasons. So yeah, that's a that's a relevant um, uh, development in the in terms of international trade flows. Gotcha. And um, one of the things that, that that you mentioned in the report also is because of of all these basically the the overall growth of of table table grape exports. Um, around the world, like everyone's going to have to figure out how to do things a little bit differently and, and find ways to, to maintain or improve profitability, find new markets. Um, and strategic partnerships you mentioned are, are part of what's going to allow that to happen. So what are some different ways that you expect to see companies kind of positioning themselves in, in the coming years for, for that long-term success in the category? Yeah, you know, the, the table grape space is becoming increasingly challenging and uh, it's, it's common to hear in the industry that you need to have the right cultivar for the right uh, market window. Um, that will continue to be uh, the case and um, easier said, said than done, but uh, some of these um, challenges that the industry has been facing such as um, labor cost raising and also water availability in most of the growing regions, we see that the development and adoption of these protected cultivars uh, will be uh, one option. And also as the industry focuses, focuses on quality, to, uh, to avoid the commoditization, uh, commoditization of the category, uh, building this strategic partnership will be uh, increasingly relevant. So uh, uh, in the future, we see that uh, some consolidated high quality table grape operations across the Americas will be, will be more common. Gotcha, gotcha. And I wanted to zoom zoom back out a little bit from uh, from table grapes and and look back again at Peru because I was just thinking we were talking about all the different categories in which they've seen just this explosive growth in, in recent years. What was kind of the catalyst for them? It seems like kind of bursting onto the scene in the the last you know five years or so now. Well, one um, one driving factor was the the development of uh, irrigation projects that is allowing uh, Peruvian operators and uh, 
to produce in um, in in new in new regions such as in in the desert, and in some of these regions they uh, are planting now in, uh, in in basically pure sand, where uh, in some cases ninety nine percent of the soil is sand. So they are using some compost and they are bringing uh, water from the mountains. And um, uh, just going back to these uh, growing conditions, uh, being close to the equator, they have uh, close to 12 uh, hours of sunlight every day year round, which allows uh, the crops to develop faster and reach um, uh, maturity in a shorter period of time compared to other growing regions and uh, have a very good yield. So uh, that's been uh, one of the uh, main drivers that, and that um, uh, are, have been allowing Peru to become a relevant player in the, um, in the, in the food market. Wow, that is fascinating. And is that is that something that has been like a, a government project and initiative, or is is that mostly pr- privately funded, or what? What's kind of the developmental background there? I, I think it, it has to do with a uh, government facilitating this uh, the, the construction of these projects. And uh, I had the opportunity to visit uh, uh, some of these projects in Peru uh, before the pandemic, and they had plans to uh, continue building these, uh, uh, developing these irrigation projects that will allow Peru to have uh, um, more more production going forward. Wow, that is fascinating. I'm, I'm sure, uh, and I don't, I don't know enough about uh, the the overall, you know, workings of, of agriculture on a broad scale in Peru. But that sounds like, man, I I feel like agriculture in the U.S. would love to have that kind of support, you know, behind it. Probably as I think about all the all the challenges I know our our fresh produce folks are feeling, particularly in terms of labor and regulation and some of these things that that can make it difficult sometimes. Yeah, that, that doesn't mean that they don't. They are not facing uh, social and political challenges, but uh, uh, that's um, uh, they've been facing those for the last few years, and still they are. They have been able to uh, con- expanding this uh, to expand these operations and being uh, successful. Mm-hmm. Well, and and I'm glad you brought that up, David, because what what kind of a role? does that that play as you guys look to you know just understand what are the opportunities for for growth in the coming years in these different places around the world you know how how do you figure out okay you know this is just kind of the way things are right now in a certain country versus okay you know this is something that could maybe impact the the economic situation in, in the industry in a meaningful way well, do you mean in terms of which uh, new growing conditions may be uh, becoming more relevant in the next uh, few years? If you mean that, I can tell you that uh, Colombia will uh, be a new sweet spot, and uh, they are already uh, there are several investors uh, uh, investing in Colombia, in Guatemala uh, to grow uh, avocados, uh, blueberries, and um, we will see some more diff- diversification uh, in the next uh, in the next few years as uh, operators are trying to identify these. Uh, 
uh, growing regions with uh, favorable conditions and to be able to provide uh, U.S. consumers uh, with um, uh, 52 weeks a year of uh, high quality fresh uh, fruits and vegetables. Excellent. And David, one more and then we'll we'll let you go. I wanted to go back to the, the table grape report real quickly because I, I, I had my questions for, for you on that, of course, but I also wanted to just ask you, what were kind of your your top takeaways as you dove into uh, into this category and the opportunities for the segment? In uh, in table grapes, uh, we've seen, as you said, uh, increased uh, sh uh, export levels. As, as a matter of fact, last season, uh, table grape exports reached a new record. Um, um, uh, even though some consider that this is uh, a mature category, still we, we're seeing um, uh, international shipments uh, to continue to grow even uh, slowly, but uh, surely. And um, uh, now this year for California production, despite of the drought, uh, drought conditions and um, still uh, the season is starting, um, is having a good start and uh, industry is still expecting to have similar volumes as uh, we observe uh, last year. So that is despite of uh, some acreage reduction, uh, production will remain at similar levels. And that is uh, due to this, uh, the adoption of these uh, higher yield cultivars that have been um, um, increasingly relevant in, the, uh, in California as well. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, David, I think that'll that'll wrap us up for us. Just about anything we missed or anything else that you really wanted to make sure uh, to, to add on here today? No, I, I think just uh, uh, some of the positive aspects of uh, fresh fruits and vegetables in terms of demand, uh, that demand will continue. We had after the COVID-19 crisis started, uh, much, the, uh, much uh, needed demand boost for some of the uh, fresh fruit categories, and uh, I, I will expect that uh, these um, uh, consumers look into eat healthy, eat something that is uh, nutrition, uh, nutritional and healthy and, and tasty as well. Uh, that will continue to be uh, the main demand drivers uh, going forward as well. Excellent. Well, thanks so much, David, for, for joining us. I, I think this is a really insightful conversation. So for everybody listening again, David Magana is a senior analyst for Rebel Bank, specializing in fresh produce. Uh, the report we've been talking about is called Setting the Table for Table Grapes, and you can find it on their website. Uh, and in case you're new, new here, this podcast is called Tip of the Iceberg because it's just one small part of our coverage of the wide world of produce. So you can check us out on thepacker.com and producemarketguide.com and on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And with that, thanks so much, everyone, for listening. And we'll see everybody next time on the Tip of the Iceberg podcast.